Amen. Well, we're continuing in a series today uh, called Summer Session, just an opportunity for us to kind of see where God would lead us from week to week. And today we're going to talk about the 100 million. There are literally 100 million people in the world, or I'm sorry, in the United States, not the world, in the United States who say they are of a Christian background, yet they are totally unchurched. I don't mean de-churched, like they kind of went to church for a while and they, and they backslid, they fell off. I mean totally unchurched. If you'd like more information about this study, you can go to barna.org. They do studies about the church and church life. And as we get into the scriptures, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 14. But when they went through this study in Barna, uh, they found this hundred million people who identified as Christians or Christ-like ones. They were people who didn't mind the moniker or the slogan or the title Christian. Yet they didn't go to church very often. In fact, they didn't go to church at all. And when they were asked about their values or their value system, Everything they talked about in answering this survey relayed back to the promises that we already have in Jesus. So there's 100 million people out there who lightly identify as Christians, who don't go to church very often, yet identify with the promises that we hold so true and so dear. 100 million unchurched people, and they want what we have. That's the problem in my mind. I don't think the church or the church here locally should be the best kept secret in the world. At some point, we have to be so vocal, so loud, so in your face that the world around us knows who we are, what we stand for, not just what we stand against, but what we stand for, and that they want to be a part of what we're doing. Let's break this idea down for a second. There's 100 million people that don't have anything to do with the church because for too often, the church has shown a generation qualities that aren't even depicted in the Bible. The church has shown a generation for far too long ideas that we don't even find in scripture. The reality is people don't wanna be controlled. They don't wanna have to jump through more religious hoops. They don't wanna have to be told that the rung of the ladder keeps getting higher and higher as they go through religious practices. Yet far too often, that's what people feel or what they understand when they hear the word church, when they hear the idea of religion, when they hear the name Jesus. Because we haven't done a very good job of telling our story, not enough people understand who Jesus is and what's really available in Christ. If they knew, they'd be in the church with us. If they really understood the full depth of what it is to worship God, to give yourself over to him, to let your light shine, they'd be here in the seats with us. We've offered them, we've offered a lost and dying world, we'd offer them religion when they really want relationship. Listen, I, I love this building that we've moved into and I'm glad that God gave us this opportunity. But one of the reasons I was so against the steeple and stained glass, which we have for whatever reason, one of the reasons I was so against it is because there's signs of religion that so many people have walked away from. We've gotta, we've gotta figure out how to rekindle the fire. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 14, verse 15, we're gonna read through verse 17. If you love me, this is Jesus talking to a bunch of people just like us, specifically his disciples. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper and that he might be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but because it does not see him or know him but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. 
This is Jesus again talking to a group of people just like us. He says, listen, if you love me, you will follow my commandments. And as you learn to live in what I've called you to, as you learn to live in what I've commanded you to, I will give you a helper. This helper, this this ride along, this ride or die buddy will be with you the whole time. And he will help lead and guide and show you in wisdom the path that God set for you. And the world around you won't really understand where you're getting this direction from, but you'll know because he abides in your heart. That's Pastor Nathan 101 of how I read that, of that verse. See, we've read this idea. We've read this concept. If you love me, you must keep my commandments. We've heard the term if plaster at the front of the phrase, and we wonder, well, I guess if I loved him, I'd do all the religious things that he asked me to do. I would tithe a little more, I'd pray a little more, I'd read my Bible a little more, I'd go to church a little more. It's a bad, it's a bad translation. Listen, there's some great translations in the word of God, and men did their best to translate them from their original languages, but oftentimes they get a little goofy. Oftentimes they screw up a little bit, and I just lost my notes, so hold on just a second, and I'll get back to it. Man, technology today, I'll tell you what, if I could throw every computer system we have out the window, I think I would do it. I am so frustrated. Anyway, where are we at? Oh my goodness. I don't even, I don't even know where I'm at. So hold on. I'll get there. All right, here we go. Bring it back up. So where are we at? What, I don't even know what week we're in. John, four, we're in John something and we're talking about Jesus, right? All right. I hate technology. It's great when it works good, but man, it stinks when it goes awry. All right, so if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Better translation would be this. If you love me, you'll find yourself doing what I've commanded. Now, right off the bat, some of us struggle with the idea of what he commanded. Well, I don't know, Jesus. I don't know if I want to jump all in yet because it's about what you've commanded, yet we understand the commands of heaven are actually very simple. Everything Jesus taught can be reduced down to two basic commandments. If you adhere to these two commandments, you'll fulfill everything within the scripture. They're very simple. Command number one, believe and commit to Jesus. That's it. Command number one is very simple. Everything that Jesus taught boils down to two commandments. Commandment number one, believe and commit to Jesus. Command number two, walk in love. Command number one, believe and commit to Jesus. If you love me, you'll do what I've commanded. If you love me, you'll find yourself living out the commands of God. You'll believe in me. You'll commit to Jesus. But on the second turn, you'll learn to walk in love. Every day we have two decisions that we can make. Am I going to wholeheartedly go after God and am I going to walk in love? It's not always the easiest thing to do to do everything that we can within our own power to go after Jesus with all that we have, that's not easy to do. I'm not gonna lie to you and say that I I follow this command perfectly because I don't, I'm human just like anyone else. And it's not always easy to love people, especially when someone's driving in front of you and they're on I-74 and they just refuse to allow you to zipper merge. You know that person? Anyway, I'm not gonna get on that, but... It's like, why should, the, why should the train be five miles long when we can use two lanes and zipper merge as they've been trying to encourage us to do for the past five years while they're building this bridge? Listen, we can learn to walk in love in all situations, in all circumstances, even when life is hard. If I commit to those two things, I'll find myself 
increasing in lining up with the word of God and what pleases God and what he has planned for my life. If I learn to commit to those two commandments, Jesus died and took all of our punishment. He took all the punishment that we would, that we would face because of our sin. Yet so many of us are still afraid of punishment. He conquered death so that you and I would never have to experience real death. He obtained righteousness so that you and I wouldn't have to earn it. He gives all of these things away to us as a free gift. So sometimes it's hard to, re- it's hard to live in this reality. So I want you to repeat this after me and feel the feelings of saying it. I want you to repeat these three phrases after me. Again, feel the feelings of what we're saying because it's important. First thing is this, I'm accepted. You can do better than that. I'm accepted accepted. as Jesus is accepted. accepted. I'm loved loved. as Jesus is loved. loved. I'm righteous righteous. as Jesus is righteous. righteous. Now I can feel it coming back to me. Some of you are like, I'm accepted. Okay, that's good. Like Jesus is accepted? I don't know, pastor sounds a little blasphemous. (laughs) I'm loved but I don't know if I'm loved and revered like Jesus. Are you sure? I'm righteous, but come on. He's, he's the God of the universe. Am I really righteous like Christ is righteous? And the fact is, yes, you are. Yes, you are. If you love me, he says, you'll keep my commandments and you'll understand or you'll learn how to live a new life in him. The Bible, as we read earlier, says that the spirit of truth will come in you and guide you in all things. We all start out this Christian walk from one place or another. You might currently be doing your best to live for God where you're at. It's a good thing. But as you move on in the journey, you'll find over time that things change a little bit. You'll find that you're not the same person that you used to be. That's a good thing. That means you're moving on a good path. You're being discipled, as the Bible says. In fact, you'll look back over a year from now and think, who was that idiot two years ago? That guy, I can't can't even relate to that guy. That's a good thing to feel that way. Today, as much as you can, commit yourself to walking wholeheartedly in everything that God has for you. Walk in love as much as you can. Live for God as much as you can. Follow the commands of God as much as you know how. But most people in church and out of church don't see too many things wrong with their life. They think think things are wrong when when the poo-poo hits the fan, we'll say it that way. They see things as wrong when life goes awry, but until that happens day to day, they're thinking, I got, I, got it, I got it under control. There's no major issue. There's no major crises. So we think to ourselves, I'm good. God and I are good. I feel on the same page as the Holy Spirit. And so we don't push ourselves to change anything. The problem is, is Jesus was commanding those who were hearing and he's commanding us today, if you love me, you'll find yourself fulfilling the command. The command is not sedentary. You can't fulfill all God has for you just by passively watching life pass you by. You have to get engaged. Let me give you an example. I love to take missions trips. Now, I was in Africa a few years ago Three years ago, I was almost three years ago, I was in Israel, it really wasn't a missions trip, but I haven't taken a missions trip in a while and I'm, I'm getting the itch. And if it wasn't for COVID, you know, I think I, we'd start planning something as a church and hopefully we'll be able to do that when things settle down. The last time I was in Costa Rica, 
We, we used to go to Costa Rica and we would help build these makeshift houses uh, for Nicaraguan refugees. And they were built on government land. They had to be built a certain way so they could be modular and they could be moved. And these homes were barely two rooms. It was really just a small room with a divide in it. And these people were just ecstatic to have anything of their own, to have a shelter that they could actually live under. And it was rough conditions. But in most countries around the world, you know where the best food is. The best food is street food. You don't ask what's in it. You don't ask to see how they make it. You just eat and hope you don't get a parasite. Thank you, Jesus. But it is absolutely the best food. Well, they have this little fruit there they call fuzzy eyeball. And you can tell by the name, it's not very appealing when you see it the first time. It's got all these spines on it. It's kind of goofy looking. And you have to crack it open to get to the core, which looks a lot like a grape. And before I ate my first fuzzy eyeball, I thought, what is that? I'm not touching that. Till I had my first one. Then my mind changed and went to give me another of whatever that was, because that thing was awesome. And there's this transition we have in life when we experience something. Because I had an opportunity to taste and to see that it was good, my opinion of what I was viewing, my opinion of what I saw changed. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalms chapter 34 and verse 8. Again, technology went a little crazy today, so it's not going to be up on the screen. Psalms 34 verse 8 says a very simple phrase, something I think most of us have heard from time to time. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joy for those who take refuge in him. Listen, there's a joy when we find ourselves in Christ, when we find ourselves doing and being all that Christ has called us to be, there's a tasting and a seeing. There's an experience that we have that opens up our life to new possibilities, that opens up our mind to, I don't even know what that is, to please give me more. There's a place we can come in Jesus where we look at life, the extension of the situation we have where we're living in Christ Jesus, and we think, God, I don't even know how to move to the next level. And he says, wait till you taste and see, because you won't even understand how good it is until you experience what I have for you. The problem is, it's very difficult to explain, to describe an experience you haven't had. Makes sense, right? It's not really not that profound. Yet too many of us live life this way. My wife and I love sushi. Love sushi. I mean, love sushi. <laughs> love it. My son, Nash, has watched us eat sushi many times. He could describe, at one point, he could describe sushi. Mom and dad like sushi. It's fish, it's raw fish. It's wrapped in seaweed, paper, and rice. They dip it in some kind of sauce and they get a smile on their face. Like he understood the process of sushi. But one day he experienced it. One day we took Nash and he had a different experience than I had the first time I had sushi. The first time I had sushi, I was with some friends of my father's and a bunch of doctors, chiropractors sitting around a table and they are tearing into this big platter of sushi. And at that time it was actually sashimi, so it was a big piece of fish, but I really, really liked uh, the shrimp. And it was a big piece of filleted shrimp laid over a bed of rice. And then you dip it in the sauce with your fingers and it's, oh, it's so good. And as a young kid, I just, man, I was tearing them down. I'm going one after another, double fisting it, just taking them down, right? And the gentleman who bought the sushi for the whole table, he was the oldest man in the group. He was a doctor that everyone was coming to see and to listen to because he was kind of that wise old sage, right? 
full of wisdom. He looked at me and said, you should probably slow down. I'm like, whatever, this stuff's way too good to slow down. He said, I don't know if you're gonna like where that ends up, and I didn't listen. And all of a sudden, my face got a little white. Then it got green. Then you can tell what was about to happen, and oh my goodness, I felt, well, I felt the spoils of war deciding they didn't wanna leave the restaurant. And so I had to run to the bathroom. And my son had a different experience when he tasted sushi for the first time. His mother and I knew exactly how we should temper his experience. So we gave him just the right piece of sushi. It was cooked a little bit. It was steamed, but it was eel, but it was steamed. And it was grain and it had the real grainy textures of the flesh of the eel. And it was wrapped in the rice and the seaweed paper. And he dipped it in that sauce. And the, the wasabi was strong enough to clear, to clear his nasal passages. And he, he felt the the taste, the sweet taste of the sweet and sour sauce, and he loved every minute of it. Now, that boy can tell you what sushi tastes like. He's, he had seen it rolled up, he had seen it prepared, he had seen it cut up into pieces, but now he has tasted and he has seen that sushi is good. And he's happy to partake anytime it's in front of him. And some of you think, why would you pay $15 for a roll? You haven't had good sushi. I'd pay three times that if it was the right roll. See, the difference is I have an experience that you don't have. It's not about an acquired taste. I have an experience that you don't have. Other people in life will look at your Christian experience and wonder, why in the world would you give up what you've given up to take that? That doesn't make sense. They haven't experienced what you have. Many of them are very good at looking inward to the church and looking at all of its deficits, looking at the church as being imperfect because it's inhabited by imperfect people. They are very good at knocking down and telling you why what you have isn't as good as you think it is. Yet they haven't tasted and seen what you've tasted and seen. This works in a marriage context when your marriage is on the rocks and it's rough. You might experience a couple that has a beautiful marriage you look at them as someone to look up to. You look at them as a couple to admire. But in your heart, you think, how can I get to that place? And until you taste and see a marriage that looks like theirs, that's beautiful and is sacred, you won't hold to the same value until you experience what they've experienced. Love compels us to action. If you love me, you will keep my commandment. It compels you to do something. Real love is closely related to values we talked about last week. That when we take communion, there's a values assessment in the blood and in the body. That communion really is about what we value in the same way when we love something, we talk about the value of what we love. When we first got married, my wife and I bought this little BMW, and I love that car. I had that thing souped up and ready to rock and roll, and I found out my wife loved that car way more than I did. You know how I know? I got tickets from her driving way too fast. She loved that car. She loved that car so much she didn't want to let go of it. It was a two-door car with a narrow back seat. There was no way we were going to put a baby. She thought, well, maybe we can put him in the trunk. No, it's not going to work. Can't, you can get in trouble for stuff like that, or at least I've been told. But she loved that car. There are two elements, I'm sorry. There are, there are two ideas here every time we, we talk about values and we talk about a value system. At one point, we, we do, we act 
We, we are compelled to act in what God's called us to. In another, we experience all that heaven has for us. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. We're gonna talk about the kingdom of heaven see, because everything that we're going after in Jesus is a reflection in our lives and it's called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God at work. The Bible says this, that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure and it's hidden in a field which a man found and he hid the treasure again. And from the joy of what he found, he goes and he sells everything that he has and he buys the field. In your Bible, there might be a little highlight there separating the next verse and it says a costly pearl. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking a fine pearl. Verse 46, and upon finding one great pearl, he went and he sold everything that he had that he would buy it. This is Jesus talking about the kingdom, the idea of tasting and seeing what we have in Christ Jesus. When that 100 million people were surveyed and they said, listen, the world or the Bible has everything that we want, but we just don't know how to access it. When they gave answers to the needs of life and they matched up with all of the scriptural promises, what they were saying is that there is a pearl of great price. There is a treasure hidden in a field. And if I knew where it was at, I would buy it. If I knew where that pearl was at, I would sell everything I had to go get it. It's values assessment. It's understanding what we value. When will we as Christians come to a place where what we exemplify in Christ is so big, so powerful, so joyful, so impactful that the world says, I have to have what you have. I have to have what you have. When will we as as followers of Jesus, get to the place that we are, we, are, we are showing off the kingdom with everything that we do. This parable describes the kingdom of God, that it's so valuable that what we have is of such great value that if we would focus our attention as believers, we could show the world everything they're missing. But often, often and too often, we're not ready to really get invested in the kingdom that way. We really haven't tasted and seen all that God has for us. We really haven't shown the world all that Jesus can bring to the table. Not because we're lazy. Listen, it's not because you're weak. It's not because you don't know enough Bible. It's because you haven't had the experience. You're living off the stories of another person. You're living off the stories of a past generation. You're living off the stories of what happened in this church or that church or this group or that group rather than experiencing them for yourself. Again, let me go back to the sushi illustration. My son knew how good sushi tasted by the look on his parents' face, yet he hadn't had a bite himself. It wasn't until he tasted and he would see that he understood the joy that would come over his face as he experienced what we had given him. The same thing's true for you. We have to come to a place where we quit hearing about how good God's kingdom is, where we quit hearing about all the provision that God provides for us, where we quit hearing about the healing that God brought here and God brought there, but it didn't happen for us. We have to come to a place in our Christian walk where we experience the healing of God, not just for you, but for someone else. Do you know the children of Israel, when they were being let loose of bondage from Egypt, they were prophesied to that they would receive lands and homes that they did not 
plant. Vineyards that they did not plant. Homes that they did not build. Plural. These people were to receive lands and homes in abundance, things that they didn't even work for. This was the promise of God. You know, the promise of God is the same for our life, that he gives us what we can't even work for, that we can't merit enough good deeds on our own to work for. He gives it to us freely, yet most of us don't accept it because we don't trust ourselves. The problem is we keep thinking that when God does something or promises something in our life in regard to the kingdom, we always think in selfish terms that it's about us. You know, God wants you prosperous, financially prosperous, not just so you can pay your bills, but so that you have enough left over you can pay your neighbor's bills. God wants you healed, not just so you are free from pain, but so that your story will manifest hope in somebody else's life and your story of healing will change their trajectory forever. God doesn't do anything in us or for us, just for us. He does it so that 100 million people that are in the balance in this nation would come to know him for who he is. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there as well. It says this, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you the gift, or to give them a reason, I'm sorry, for the hope that's in you. But do this with gentleness and love. A command from the early church. There's a hope that's in us that is Jesus. There's a hope that's in us that is Jesus in everything that he encompassed on that cross, everything that he paid for on that cross, all the good things of heaven, the heavens itself coming to live within us. Listen, as that Lord's prayer says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we can expect heaven to earth through us, the individual. But we have to be willing to make a defense for the hope that we have. There's a hope you have in Christ that you should be willing, that whether it's your own internal conversation asking you why you believe in Jesus or whether it's an outside force pulling on you. What is this God that you serve really about? You should be ready to make a defense for what God has done in your life. But we've been told too often in culture, shut up and don't talk about religion. Religion and politics, can't talk about it. Forget that nonsense. It's not religion anyway. I'm not gonna tell you the, the, the symbols of communion and the long theological discourse of what that means on a public street. I'm not gonna tell you the history of the stained glass in this building. I'm not gonna tell you who made the steeple on top of the, the roof. None of that matters. That's all religion. What I wanna get across is I serve a Jesus who can answer every single one of life's problems. The defense I have for the hope I have in him is that Jesus is the answer. When will we get strong enough, comfortable enough to just tell the world that Jesus is the answer? Now, how many of you at times feel condemned? Don't raise your hand for not sharing your faith enough. I'm in that group. Come on. In fact, just the other day, the Holy Spirit moved on me. We went to, uh, my wife and I had a little time to ourselves, went to grab some food. We went to a restaurant locally. And as we're walking out the door, there's a gentleman walking in and God told, he spoke to my heart so deeply, go, go talk to that man, pay for his meal. And I went, but my wife has something to do. It's true. I blamed her just like Adam blamed Eve. God, you, the woman you gave me told me to do something else. 
finding all the reason I could not to answer that call, and I didn't. I'm not, I'm not ashamed, because I know God's will will be had. But I'm honest that I'm not perfect with this, and I wish I were more perfect. I wish every encounter where the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart, I was ready to make a defense for the hope that I have in Christ Jesus. And for some reason in that moment, and it was just a few days ago, I wasn't ready. Now, there's been other times, man, I've been ready with bells on. I've been ready. Come on, just bring them, Jesus. I'm ready to have a fight. I'll, def- I'll defend Jesus till the day I die. I've been that guy too. Yet the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 to do all of this, to have your defense in gentleness and respect. We're not trying to win verbal arguments. We're not trying to win social media arguments. We're trying to defend the faith. So we get the word apologia or apologetics. We defend the faith. We defend what God has done for us. We defend who Jesus is to us. And we don't make we don't make excuses for what we're doing. There's a gentleman who had the opportunity to study under a little bit, Dr. Norville Hayes. Some of you might know Dr. Hayes. If you studied some theology, he used to travel and speak at schools and he used to speak at churches all over the country. I believe he's from North Carolina. I can't remember, South Carolina. Anyway, I had the opportunity to hear him when he was older and he wasn't exactly a very vibrant speaker. And when he got older, he really wasn't a vibrant speaker. And so I'm in a class with him and I, and I, and I fell asleep. Just, just being honest. Sorry, mom, I fell asleep in college. But I fell asleep in a class with Dr. Hayes and he walked over with whatever book or Bible he had in his hand and he slammed it on the desk really hard and I jolted me away. I'm like, oh, good Lord Jesus, the rapture's here, you know. I had no idea what was going on. He's gonna kill me, you know. This 80-year-old man or whatever he was. At that point, he started in on a story, a story that stuck with me. So I'm glad he woke me up. A story that stuck with me and it will probably stick with me forever. See, Dr. Hayes was telling a story about when he was traveling and he was speaking at different churches and they were trying to just catch him in something that they could put against him. They could throw out his like a, kind of like a tabloid slander, kind of what we see happening on social media today, that they could slander his name and then slander his ministry. He found his way back to his hotel late in the evening after preaching all day. When he got there, there was a woman who was paid to be there. You kind of might get the idea what kind of woman this would be. He opened his door and he saw her sitting on the bed. And his first answer, his only answer was very simple. Ma'am, I could have you or I could have Jesus, but I can't have both. Today, I choose Jesus. He was honest enough with our class to say that it wasn't by his own strength because she was a very young and attractive woman and he was an elderly, older man at the time, but you still have devices. It wasn't because his marriage covenant, well, it wasn't because the contract of that covenant was so so vivid in his memory. It was because he valued Jesus more than he did that moment. We have to ask ourselves the question as we taste and see that God is good, as we taste and see the goodness of our God, as we have a hope that we're making a defense for in our own heart of what God has done for us, do we value it so much that regardless of what temptation would be in front of us, that we could cast it off and say, no, I can either have you or I can have Jesus. Listen, our life is based around value judgment. Whether we like it or not, our life is constantly based around value judgment. Every time you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. Every time you say yes 
to something, you're saying no to something else. We have to ask the question, are we saying yes enough to the kingdom of God? Are we saying yes enough to living in that space that God's carved out for us? Are we saying yes enough, often enough, consistent enough, daily enough that other people would be envious of our Christian walk? Or are we so quiet, so reserved, so passive that the only thing they know about us is that we go to church every once in a while and we might be crazy? What is it? Do the, do the, does the world around you know do they know, do they have an understanding that you are sold out, that everything in you would give all that you have for this pearl of great price, for the kingdom of God that is at hand? Or are they wondering, mm, I bet we can get them, bet we can get them to falter. I bet we can get them to move. See, unfortunately, through COVID-19, we have seen all too many churches and church leaders get pushed a little bit and back down and crumble. Listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't be safe. Please understand me. Do whatever you feel is what can keep you safe because I believe in safety. However, the government's authority stops at that door. I don't answer to the government at that door. At that door, I answer to Jesus only. And if God tells me to do something, that's what we're going to do. I don't care if it's popular. I don't care if it pushes back against government mandates. I don't care if everyone understands or even likes the decision. That's where the opinions of man stop. We have a responsibility to decide what we will place value in so that those hundred million people that are looking, that equates to tens of thousands of people here in our own quad cities, that as they're looking on, do they see a church with purpose? Do they see a people with destiny? Do they see folks who have the kingdom of God so readily and so at hand that they're envious of what we have? Every time I choose to sit and watch a football game and not play with my sons, I'm deciding a level of value over them. Listen, we've all had that day where we had a bad day. We just want to sit and relax. And kids come up and want to snuggle or mess with you or poke at you. One day I'm sitting there reading a book that I just want to get into because it's a great book and I want to glean from all the information. And Nash was a young little guy and he comes up to me and he whacks the book down. I pull the book back up and I start reading. He comes back over and he whacks the book down. I pull the book back up, I start reading. He comes back over a third time. He whacks the book down. He says, Daddy, tension. We know what he wanted. He wanted attention. But in the moment, he got tension. Because my value system in the moment was the book over the child. We all choose at times where we place value, whether we do it on purpose, whether we do it inadvertently. We all have tension moments where the world is smacking at us, tension they want your attention. What will you give them? What will show up in those moments? As we close out today, I have to ask a simple question. If not me, if not you, then who? If it's not gonna be us in this room listening over the internet, if it's not going to be us who makes a stand to live out the clarion call of Jesus Christ. If it's not going to be us who says enough is enough, the church will have her way. If it's not going to be us who creates a standard that the world should live by. If it's not going to be us 
who believes all the promises of Christ are yes and amen. They are settled in heaven and they are ours if we'll go after them. If it's not going to be us, who are we waiting for? What superstar Christian are we waiting to walk through the back doors to finally lead us? I think in too many churches today, Jesus could walk in and start a march and a revolution and we'd say, mm, I don't know if I like that guy. I don't know if I want to follow him that far. I'm good on Sundays, maybe a midweek here and there. Give me a small group and I'll be happy. But every day, Jesus, every day, always be ready to make a defense for the hope that's found in you. If you love me, you'll find yourself following these commands. When will we come to a place in Christ? When will we come to a place in Jesus where we let it all go? Jesus, have your way. Every day of my life, God, have your way. I'm not gonna be perfect. God, I'm not gonna listen every time that you speak. I will try my best, but I'm only human. But God, have your way. God, do in me what only you can do. God, do in me what only the Spirit can do. God, I wanna be one that rises up to the level of a revolutionary, that changes the world around them, even if it's just your home. How different would your life be? How different would your home be if you decided to live out these principles that every day you decided that you would follow Christ and that you would live in an attitude and atmosphere of love? The world would change in a moment. I wanna encourage you today that as we celebrate independence, as we finish out the weekend and we go back to our work weeks on Monday, as we go back to reality on Monday morning, may this afternoon be a moment of turning point for you. That you think in your heart and your soul, God, if it's not gonna be me, then who is going to push the kingdom. If it's not going to be me, God, then who is going to declare the mighty and matchless works of our God? If it's not going to be me, God, then who is it? Maybe it inspires you a little bit today to speak of a new independence, a real independence, an independence from fear of man, an independence from the fear that you would be labeled, that you would be ostracized, that you would be set apart. Maybe today you have an independence in your spirit and in your heart that says, Jesus, I'll live for you the best I know how. That's really all this is about.